This is Audible. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Random House Audio presents Star Wars Darth Bane Rule of Two A Novel of the Old Republic by Drew Karpishin Read for you by Jonathan Davis Prologue Darovit made his stumbling way through the bodies that littered the battlefield, his mind numb with grief and horror. He recognized many of the dead. Some were servants of the Light Side, allies of the Jedi. Others were followers of the Dark Side, minions of the Sith. And even in his dazed stupor, Darovit couldn't help but wonder which side he belonged with. A few months earlier, he'd still gone by his childhood name, Tomcat. Back then, he'd been nothing more than a thin, dark-haired boy of 13, living with his cousins Rain and Bug back on the small world of Samov Rit. They had heard rumblings of the never-ending war between the Jedi and the Sith, but they never thought it would touch their quiet, ordinary lives. Until the Jedi Scout had come to see Root, their appointed guardian. General Hoth, leader of the Jedi Army of Light, was desperate for more Jedi, the scout had explained. The fate of the entire galaxy hung in the balance, and the children under Root's care had shown an affinity for the Force. At first, Root had refused. He claimed his charges were too young to go off to war, but the scout had persisted. Finally, realizing that if the children did not go to the Jedi, the Sith might come and take them forcibly. Root had relented. Darovit and his cousins had left Samovrit with the Jedi Scout and headed for Rusan. At the time, the children had thought it was the beginning of a grand adventure. Now Darovit knew better. Too much had happened since they'd all arrived on Rusan. Everything had changed. And the youth for he had lived through too much in the past weeks to be called a boy anymore, didn't understand any of it. He'd come to Rusan full of hope and ambition, dreaming of the glory that would be his when he helped General Hoth and the Jedi Army of Light defeat the Sith serving in Lord Khan's Brotherhood of Darkness. But there was no glory to be found on Rusan, not for him, and not for his cousins. Rain had died even before their ship touched down on Rusan. They'd been ambushed by a squadron of Sith buzzards only seconds after they broke atmosphere, the tail of their vessel shorn off on the attack. Darovid had watched in horror as Rain was swept away by the blast, literally ripped from his arms before plunging to an unseen death hundreds of meters below. His other cousin Bug had died only a few minutes ago, a victim of the Thought Bomb, his spirit consumed by the terrible power of Lord Khan's final suicidal weapon. Now, he was gone, like all the Jedi and all the Sith. The Thought Bomb had destroyed every living being strong enough to wield the power of the Force. Everyone, except Darovit. And this he couldn't understand. In fact, nothing on Rusan made any sense to him. Nothing. 
He'd arrived expecting to see the legendary army of light he'd heard about in stories and poems, heroic Jedi defending the galaxy against the dark side of the Force. Instead, he'd witnessed men, women, and other beings who fought and died like common soldiers, ground into the mud and blood of the battlefield. He'd felt cheated, betrayed. Everything he'd heard about the Jedi had been a lie. They weren't shining heroes. Their clothes were soiled with grime. Their camps stank of sweat and fear. And they were losing. The Jedi whom Darovit had encountered on Rusan were defeated and downtrodden, weary from the seemingly endless series of battles against Lord Khan Sith, stubbornly refusing to surrender even when it was clear they couldn't win. And all the power of the Force couldn't restore them to the shining icons of his naive imagination. There was movement on the far edge of the battlefield. Squinting against the sun, Darovit saw half a dozen figures slowly making their way through the carnage, gathering up the fallen bodies of friend and foe alike. He wasn't alone. Others had survived the thought bomb, too. He ran forward, but his excitement cooled as he drew close enough to make out the features of those tasked with cleaning the battlefield. He recognized them as volunteers from the Army of Light, not Jedi but ordinary men and women who'd sworn allegiance to Lord Hoth. The Thought Bomb had only taken those with sufficient power to touch the Force. Non-Force-using folk like these were immune to its devastating effects. But Darovit wasn't like them. He had a gift. Some of his earliest memories were of using the Force to levitate toys for the amusement of his younger cousin Rain when they were both children. These people had survived because they were ordinary plain. They weren't special like he was. Darovit's survival was a mystery. Just one more thing about all this he didn't understand. As he approached, one of the figures sat down on a rock, weary from the task of gathering the dead. He was an older man, nearly fifty. His face looked drawn and haggard, as if the grim task had sapped his mental reserves along with the physical. Darovit recognized his features from those first few weeks he'd spent in the Jedi camp, though he'd never bothered to learn the old man's name. A sudden realization froze Darovit in his tracks. If he recognized the man, then the man might also recognize him. He might remember Darovit. He might know the young man was a traitor. The truth about the Jedi had disgusted Darovit, repulsed him his illusions and daydreams crushed by the weight of harsh reality. He'd acted like a spoiled child and turned against the Jedi. Seduced by easy promises of the Dark Side's power, he'd switched sides in the war and thrown himself in with the Brotherhood of Darkness. It was only now that he understood how wrong he'd been. The realization had come upon him as he'd witnessed Bug's death, a death for which he was partly responsible. Too late, he had learned the true cost of the Dark Side. Too late, he understood that, through the Thought Bomb, Lord Khan's madness had brought devastation upon them all. He was no longer a follower of the Sith. He no longer hungered to learn the secrets of the Dark Side. But how could this old man, a devoted follower of General Hoth, know that? If he remembered Darovit, he would remember him only as the enemy. For a second, he thought about trying to escape, just to turn and run and the tired old man still catching his breath wouldn't be able to stop him. It was the kind of thing he'd once done all the time. But things were different now. 
Whether it was from guilt, maturity, or simply a desire to see it all end, Darovit didn't run away. Whatever fate awaited him, he chose to stay and face it. Moving with slow but determined steps, he approached the rock where the man was sitting, seemingly lost in thought. Darovit was only a few meters away when the man finally glanced up to acknowledge him. There was no glint of recognition in his eyes. There was only an empty, haunted look. All of them. The man mumbled, though whether he was talking to Darovit or himself wasn't clear. All the Jedi and all the Sith. All gone. The man turned his head, fixing his vacant stare on the dark entrance to a small cave nearby. A chill went through Darovit as he realized what the man was talking about. The entrance led underground, through twisting tunnels to the cavern deep beneath the ground where Khan and his Sith had gathered to unleash the Thought Bomb. The man grunted and shook his head, dispelling the morbid state he had slipped into. Standing up with a weary sigh, his mind was once more focused on his duty. He gave Daravid a slight nod, but otherwise paid him no further heed as he resumed the macabre task of rolling the corpses in cloth so they could be collected and given honorable burials. Daravid turned toward the cave. Again, part of him wanted to back away and run, but another part of him was drawn to the black maw of the tunnel. Maybe there were answers to be found inside. Something to make sense of all the death and violence. Something to help him see the reasons behind the endless war and bloodshed. Maybe he'd discover something to help him grasp some purpose behind everything that had happened here. The air grew steadily cooler the deeper he descended. He could feel a tingling in the pit of his stomach. Anticipation, mixing with a sick sense of dread. He wasn't sure what he'd find once he reached the underground chamber at the tunnel's end. More bodies, perhaps? But he was determined not to turn back. As the darkness enveloped him, he silently cursed himself for not bringing along a glow rod. He had a lightsaber at his belt. Getting his hands on one of the fabled weapons was one of the temptations that had lured him over to the Sith. But even though he'd betrayed the Jedi just to lay claim to it, in the darkness of the tunnel, he no longer felt any desire to ignite it and use its light to guide him. The last time he'd drawn it had resulted in Bug's death, and the memory had tainted the prize he had sacrificed everything to gain. He knew that if he turned back, he might never gather enough courage to make the trip down again. So he pressed on despite the darkness. He moved slowly reaching out with his mind, trying to draw on the force to guide him through the lightless tunnel. Even so, he kept tripping over the uneven ground or stubbing his toes. In the end, he found it easier just to run one hand along the rocky wall and use it to guide himself. His progress was slow but steady, the tunnel floor becoming steeper and steeper until he was half climbing down it in the darkness. After half an hour, he noticed a faint light emanating from far ahead a soft glow coming from the distant end of the passage. He picked up his pace, only to trip over a small outcropping of stone jutting up from the rough-hewn ground. He fell forward with a cry of alarm, falling and tumbling down the sharp slope until he came to rest, bruised and battered, at the tunnel's end. It opened into a wide, high-ceilinged chamber. Here the dim glow that had drawn him forward was reflected from flecks of crystal embedded in the surrounding stone. 
illuminating the cavern so he could see everything clearly. A few stalactites still hung from the roof high above. Hundreds more lay smashed on the cavern's floor, dislodged when Khan had detonated the thought bomb. The bomb itself, or what remained of it, hovered a meter above the ground in the very center of the cavern, the source of the illumination. At first glance, it appeared to be an oblong metallic orb, four meters from top to bottom and nearly three meters across at its widest point. Its surface was a flat, dusky silver that projected a pale radiance, but at the same time devoured all light reflected back to it by the crystals trapped in the surrounding walls. Rising to his feet, Daravid shivered. He was surprisingly cold. The orb had sucked all the warmth from the air. He took a step forward. The dust and debris crunching below his foot sounded flat and hollow, as if the thought bomb were swallowing not just the heat of the cavern, but the noise as well. Pausing, he listened to the unnatural silence. He couldn't hear anything, but he definitely felt something. A faint, thrumming vibration running through the floor and up into his body. A steady rhythmic pulse coming from the orb. Daravid held his breath, unaware he was doing so, and took another tentative step forward. When nothing happened, he let the air escape from his lungs with a long, soft sigh. Gathering his courage, he continued his cautious approach, reaching out a hand but never taking his eyes from the sphere. He drew close enough to see dark bands of shadow slowly twisting and turning beneath the shimmering surface like black smoke trapped deep within the core. Two more steps, and he was close enough to touch it. His hand trembling only slightly, he leaned forward and pressed his palm against the surface. His mind exploded with wails of pure anguish. A shrieking cacophony of voices rose from the orb, all the victims of the thought bomb screaming out in torment. Daravit wrenched his hand free and staggered back, dropping to his knees. They were still alive. The bodies of the Jedi and Sith had been consumed by the thought bomb, crumbling into dust and ash, but their spirits had survived, sucked into the vortex at the heart of the bomb's blast, only to be imprisoned forever. He had only touched the surface for the briefest of seconds, but the keening of spirits had nearly driven him mad. Trapped inside the impregnable shell, they were condemned to an eternity of endless, unbearable suffering. A fate so horrible that Daravid's mind refused to fully grasp the implications. Still hunched over on the ground, he clasped his head in his hands in a gesture of helpless futility. He'd come here seeking answers and explanations. Instead, he'd found an abomination against nature itself, one from which every part of his being instinctively recoiled. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. He muttered the phrase over and over again, huddled on the ground, rocking slowly back and forth on his heels and still clutching his head in his hands. Chapter One Peace is a lie. There is only passion. Through passion, I gain strength. Through strength, I gain power. Through power, I gain victory. Through victory, my chains are broken. 
the Code of the Sith. Darth Bane, the only Sith Lord to escape the devastation of Khan's thought bomb, marched quickly under a pale yellow Rusan sun, moving steadily across the bleak, war-torn landscape. He was two meters tall, and his black boots covered the ground in long, sweeping strides, propelling his large, powerfully muscled frame with a sense of urgent purpose. There was an air of menace about him, accentuated by his shaved head, his heavy brow, and the dark intensity of his eyes. This, even more than his forbidding black armor or the sinister hook-handled lightsaber dangling from his belt, marked him as a man of fearsome power, a true champion of the dark side of the Force. His thick jaw was set in grim determination against the pain that flared up every few minutes at the back of his bare skull. He had been many kilometers away from the thought bomb when it detonated, but even at that range, he had felt its power reverberating through the Force. The after-effects lingered, sporadic bursts shooting through his brain like a million tiny knives stabbing at the dark recesses of his mind. He'd expected these attacks to fade over time, but in the hours since the blast their frequency and intensity had steadily increased. He could have called on the Force to keep the pain at bay, cloaking himself in an aura of healing energy. But that was the way of the Jedi, and Bane was a Dark Lord of the Sith. He walked a different path, one that embraced suffering, drawing strength from the ordeal. He transformed the pain into anger and hate, feeding the flames of the dark side until his physical aspect seemed almost to glow with the fury of a storm it could barely contain. The terrifying image Bane projected contrasted sharply with the small figure that followed in his wake, struggling to keep up. Xana was only ten, a waif of a girl with short curly blonde hair. Her clothing was simple and plain to the point of being rustic. A loose-fitting white shirt and faded blue coveralls, both torn and stained from weeks of continuous wear. Anyone who saw her scampering along after Bane's massive, black-clad form would have been hard-pressed to imagine she was the Sith Master's chosen apprentice. But looks could be deceiving. There was power in the child. He'd seen ample proof of that at their first meeting less than an hour earlier. Two nameless Jedi were dead by her hand. Bane didn't know all the details surrounding their deaths. He'd arrived after the fact to find Xana crying over the body of a bouncer, one of the telepathic green-furred species native to Rusan. The still-warm corpses of the Jedi had been sprawled beside her, their heads lolling at grotesque angles atop broken necks. Clearly, the bouncer had been the child's friend and companion. Bane surmised that the Jedi must have inadvertently killed the bouncer, only to meet a similar fate when Xana exacted her revenge. Unaware of her power, they'd been caught off guard when the child, driven by mind-numbing grief and pure abject hatred, had unleashed the full fury of the dark side on the men who'd slain her friend. They were victims of cruel misfortune, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yet it would have been inaccurate to call their deaths pointless. In Bane's eyes, at least, their sacrifice had allowed him to recognize the young girl's potential. To some, this series of events would have seemed preordained, 
as if the hapless Jedi had been inexorably drawn to their grim end with the sole purpose of uniting Bane and Xana. No doubt there were even those who would profess that fate and the dark side of the Force had conspired to present the Master with a suitable apprentice. Bane, however, was not one of them. He believed in the power of the Force, but he also believed in himself. He was more than just a servant of prophecy or a pawn of the dark side, subject to the whims of an inevitable, inescapable future. The Force was a tool he had used to forge his own destiny through strength and cunning. He alone among the Sith had truly earned the mantle of Dark Lord, which was why he alone among them still lived. And if Xana was worthy of being his apprentice, she would eventually have to prove herself as well. He heard a grunt behind him and turned back to see that the girl had tumbled to the ground, falling in her haste to try to keep up with the relentless pace he'd set. She glared at him, anger etched across her features. Slow down, she snapped. You're going too fast. Bane clenched his teeth as a fresh bolt of pain ripped through his skull. I am not going too fast, he replied, keeping his voice even but stern. You are going too slow. You must find a way to keep up. She scrambled to her feet, swatting at the scuffed knees of her overalls to wipe away the most obvious traces of dirt. My legs aren't as long as yours, she replied crossly, refusing to back down. How am I supposed to keep up? The girl had spirit. That had been clear from the moment of their first meeting. She had recognized Bane instantly for what he was. One of the Sith, sworn enemy of the Jedi, a servant of the dark side. Yet she had shown no fear. In Xana, Bane had seen the potential for the successor he needed. But she had obviously seen something she wanted in him too. And when he had offered her the chance to be his apprentice, to study and learn the ways of the dark side, she hadn't hesitated. He wasn't yet certain why Xana had been so eager to ally herself with the Lord of the Sith. It could have been a simple act of desperation. She was alone, with nowhere else to turn for her survival. Or maybe she saw the dark side as a path to vengeance against the Jedi. A way to make them all suffer for the death of her bouncer friend. It was even possible she had simply sensed Bane's power and lusted to claim it as her own. Whatever her true motivation, Xana had been more than willing to swear fealty to the Sith and her new master. However, it was neither her spirit nor her willingness that made her worthy of being his apprentice. The Dark Lord had chosen her for one reason, and one reason only. You are strong in the Force, he explained, his voice still betraying no hint of emotion or the agony he endured. You must learn to use it call on its power, to bend it to your purpose, as you did when you killed the Jedi. He saw a flicker of doubt cross her face. I don't know how I did that, she muttered. I didn't even mean to do it, she continued, suddenly uncertain. It just sort of happened. Bane detected a hint of guilt in her voice. He was disappointed, but hardly surprised. She was young, confused. She couldn't truly understand what she had done. Not yet. Nothing just happens, he insisted. 
You called upon the power of the Force. Think back to how you did it. Think back to what happened. She hesitated, then shook her head. I don't want to, she whispered. The girl had already endured immeasurable pain and suffering since her arrival on Rusan. She had no wish to revisit those awful experiences. Bane understood. He even sympathized with her. He too had suffered during his childhood, a victim of countless savage beatings at the hands of Hurst, his cruel and abusive father. But he had learned to use those memories to his advantage. If Xana was to become the heir to the Dark Side's legacy, she had to confront her past. She had to learn how to draw upon her most painful memories. She had to transform and channel them to allow her to wield the power of the Dark Side. You feel sorry for those Jedi now, Bane said, his voice casual. You feel regret, remorse, maybe even pity. The easy tone fell away quickly as his voice began to rise in both volume and intensity. But these are worthless emotions. They mean nothing. What you need to feel is anger. He took a sudden step toward her, his right fist clenched before him to punctuate his words. Xana flinched at the unexpected movement, but didn't retreat. Their deaths were not an accident, he shouted as he took another step forward. What happened was not some mistake! A third step brought him so close that the shadow of his massive frame enveloped the girl like an eclipse. She cowered slightly but held her ground. Bane froze, blocking out the pain in the back of his skull and reining in his fury. He crouched down beside her and relaxed his clenched fist. Then he reached out slowly with his hand and placed it gently on her shoulder. Think back to what you felt when you unleashed your power against them, he said, his voice now a soft, seductive whisper. Think back to what you felt when the Jedi murdered your friend. Xana dropped her head, her eyes closed. For several seconds, she was still and silent, forcing her mind to relive the moment. Bane saw the emotions crossing her face, grief, sorrow, loss. Beneath his massive hand on her frail shoulder, she trembled slightly. Then slowly, he felt her anger begin to rise, and with it, the power of the dark side. When the girl looked up again, her eyes were open wide. They burned with a fierce intensity. They killed La, she spat. They deserve to die! Good. Bane let his hand fall from her shoulder and took a step back, the hint of a satisfied smile playing across his lips. Feel the anger. Welcome it. Embrace it. Through passion, I gain strength, he continued, reciting from the Code of the Sith. Through strength, I gain power. Through passion, I gain strength, she said, repeating his words, responding to them. Through strength I gain power. He could sense the dark side building within her, growing in intensity until he could almost feel its heat. The Jedi died because they were weak, he said, taking a step back. Only the strong survive, and the Force will make you strong. As he turned away, he added, Use it to keep up. If you fall behind again, I will leave you here on this world. 
but you still haven't told me what to do! She shouted after him as he marched away. Bane didn't reply. He'd given her the answer, though she didn't know it yet. If she was worthy of being his apprentice, she'd figure it out. He felt a sudden surge of power rushing toward him, concentrated on the heel of his left foot as she tried to trip him up to slow him down. Bane had braced himself for some kind of reaction the moment he'd turned his back on her. He'd pushed her to the edge. He'd have been disappointed if she'd done nothing. But he'd been expecting a broader, more basic assault, a wave of dark side energy meant to hurl him to the ground. A focus strike against a single heel was much more subtle. It showed intelligence and cunning. And though he was ready for it, the strength of her attack still surprised him. Yet even with as much power and potential as Xana had, she was no match for a Dark Lord of the Sith. Bane drew upon his own abilities in the Force to absorb the impact of her attack, catching it and amplifying its strength before firing it back at his apprentice. The redirected blow struck Xana in the chest hard enough to knock her to the ground. A grunt of surprise escaped her lips as she landed hard on her backside. She wasn't injured. Bane had no intention of harming her. The constant beatings inflicted on him by his father throughout his childhood had helped transform Bane into what he was today. But they had also caused him to hate and despise Hurst. If this girl was to be his apprentice, she had to respect and admire him. He could not teach her the ways of the dark side if she was not willing, even eager, to learn from him. The only thing Hurst's beatings had ever taught Bane was how to hate, and Xana already knew that lesson. He turned back and fixed his cold gaze on the girl still sitting on a hard, bare patch of dirt. She glared back up at him, furious at the way he'd humiliated her. A Sith knows when to unleash the fury of the dark side. He informed her, and when to hold back. Patience can be a weapon if you know how to use it, and your anger can fuel the dark side if you learn how to control it. She was still fuming with rage, but he saw something else in her expression now, a guarded curiosity. Slowly she nodded as the meaning of his words became clear and her expression softened. Bane could still feel the power of the dark side within her. Her anger was still there, but she had hidden it below the surface. She was nursing it, feeding it for a time when she could unleash it. She had just learned her first lesson in the ways of the Sith, and she was wary of him now, wary but not afraid, just as he wanted. The only thing he needed her to be afraid of was failure. He turned away from her again and resumed his march, suppressing a shudder as a fresh phalanx of blades carved their way through his thoughts. Behind him, he felt Xana gather the force once more. This time, however, the girl directed it inward, using it to refresh and rejuvenate her exhausted limbs. She sprang up and scurried after him, moving almost effortlessly at a full run. He quickened his pace as his apprentice fell into step beside him, easily able to keep up now that she was propelled by the awesome power of the Force. Where are we going? She asked. The Sith camp, he answered. We need supplies for the journey. Are the other Sith there? She wondered. The ones the Jedi were fighting? 
Bane realized he hadn't yet told her what had happened to Khan and the Brotherhood. There are no other Sith. There never will be except for us. One master and one apprentice. One to embody the power. The other to crave it. What happened to the others? She wanted to know. I killed them, he replied. Xana seemed to think about this for a moment before shrugging indifferently. Then they were weak, she said with simple conviction. And they deserved to die. Bane realized he had chosen his apprentice well. Chapter 2 The great warship of Lord Valentine Farfalla, leader of the Jedi Army of Light since the loss of General Hoth, maintained a slow orbit high above Rusan's surface. Fashioned so that her exterior resembled an ancient sailing barge, the vessel had an archaic elegance, a grandeur that some felt was a sign of vanity unbecoming in a Jedi. Johan Othon, a young Padawan in the Army of Light, had once shared that opinion. Like many of Hoth's followers, he had initially regarded Lord Valentine as nothing but a prancing fool, concerned only with brightly colored shimmer silk shirts, the long flowing curls of his golden hair, and the other trappings of garish and gaudy fashion. Yet in battle after battle against the Brotherhood of Darkness, Farfalla and his followers had proved their worth. Slowly, almost grudgingly, Johan and the rest of Hoth's troops had come to admire and even respect the man they once had scoffed at. Now General Hoth was gone, destroyed along with the Sith in their final confrontation, and in his absence, it was Lord Valentine who'd taken up the banner of leadership. Following Hoth's orders, Farfalla had organized the mass evacuation of Rusan before the detonation of the Thought Bomb, saving thousands of Force-sensitive Jedi and Padawans from its devastating effects by loading them onto the ships of his orbiting fleet. It was mere chance that Johan had ended up here on the Fairwind, Valentine's flagship. The vessel was large enough to hold a crew of over 300 comfortably, but crammed into the hold with nearly 500 other evacuees, the young man was anything but comfortable. They were packed in so tightly it was difficult to move. Jedi Masters, Jedi Knights, and Padawans were pressed shoulder to shoulder. The other ships were just as full. In addition to the Jedi, the vast majority of the non-Force-sensitive troops who had joined Hoth's cause had also been taken off-world. One of the ships had even been loaded up with several hundred prisoners. The non-Sith followers of Lord Khan, who had quickly surrendered to the Jedi when their Dark Leader had abandoned them to embark on his final mad plan to destroy the Jedi. There wasn't any real danger for these ordinary soldiers. The Thought Bomb only affected those most attuned to the Force. But in the haste to evacuate, it had been simpler to just take everyone. Here on Valentine's personal galleon, however, Johan recognized nearly every face. He had fought beside them for many months, through ambushes, skirmishes, and full-scale battles. Together, they had borne witness to death and bloodshed, tasted glorious triumph and endured crushing defeat. Each of them had seen many foes and too many friends die, as they'd waged a seemingly endless campaign against the forces of the dark side. Now, as they huddled together in this ship, 
the war was finally over. Victory was theirs at last. Yet every being aboard wore a grim and somber mask. The extinction of the Sith had come with a terrible price. There was no doubt about what had happened, no hope that any of the Jedi still down on the surface had survived. Orbiting high above Rusan, they had been safely outside the blast radius of the Thought Bomb. But through the Force, they had heard the agonized screams of their fellow Jedi as their spirits were torn apart and swept up in the swirling vortex of dark side energy. Many of the survivors had wept openly. Most simply endured the suffering in stoic silence, reflecting on the sacrifice others had made. Johan, like Farfalla and virtually every other member of the Army of Light, had volunteered to stay behind with General Hoth. But the General had refused. Knowing that those who stayed with him faced certain death, he had ordered all but a hundred of his Jedi followers off the world. None of the Padawans had been allowed to remain. Yet even though he was only following orders, Johan couldn't help but feel he'd betrayed his general by fleeing the planet. Across the densely packed hold, he could just make out Farfalla, his bright red blouse standing out like a beacon among the sea of mostly brown-clad bodies. He was organizing the rescue parties that would be shuttled back down to Rusan's surface to deal with the aftermath of the Thought Bomb, and Johan was determined to be among them. It was difficult to move through the mass of Jedi, but Johan was small and slight. He was 19, but he had yet to fill out, and with his slender build, fair skin, and shoulder-length light blonde hair, twisted into a tight braid, as was the custom for a young Jedi still in training, he looked at least two years younger. It could be frustrating to be mistaken for a kid, but now, as he twisted and slithered through the throng, he was grateful for his slim physique. Lord Valentine, he called as he drew near. He raised his voice further to be heard above the din. Lord Valentine! Farfalla turned, trying to pick out the owner of the voice from the wall of bodies and faces, then gave a nod of recognition as the young man finally burst into view. Padawan Johan. I want to join the rescue teams, Johan blurted. Send me back down. I'm afraid I cannot do that, the Jedi Master replied with a sympathetic shake of his head. Why not? Johan demanded. Do you think I'm too young? That is not, Farfalla began, but Johan cut him off. I'm not a kid. I'm 19, older than those two for sure, he insisted, waving his hand in the direction of the nearest rescue team a group consisting of a middle-aged man with a short beard, a woman in her twenties, and two boys in their early teens. Be aware of your anger, Farfalla cautioned him, his voice stern. Johan was about to reply, but instead bit his tongue and merely nodded. There was no point in getting upset. That would not convince Lord Valentine to let him go along. Your age has nothing to do with my decision. The older Jedi explained, once he was assured that Johan had brought his emotions under control. Fully a third of our forces are younger than you. It was true, Johan realized. The mounting casualties of the Rusan campaign had forced the Army of Light to accept younger and younger recruits into its ranks. His youth was not the issue. There had to be some other explanation. But instead of asking why he could not go, Johan simply remained silent. Patience would win him more from General Hoth's successor than incessant, thoughtless questions. Take a closer look at who I am sending down, 
Farfalla instructed. These are brave volunteers, valuable allies in our battle against the Sith. But none of them is attuned to the Force. Surprised, Johan took a second look at the shore party as they made their final preparations. The woman had dark skin and short black hair, and the Jedi realized he'd met her once before. She was a Republic soldier named Irtana, and she had joined their cause a little over a standard year earlier. It took him a moment longer to place the others, until he noticed the resemblance between the bearded man and the two teenagers. They were natives of Rusan. The man was a farmer named Bordon, who had fled before the advancing armies of Lord Khan during the latest Sith offensive. The two boys were his sons, though Johan couldn't recall their names. We do not know the full extent of the Thought Bomb's effects, Farfalla continued. There may be aftershocks that could harm or even kill a Jedi or Padawan. That is why you cannot go. Johan nodded. It made sense. Valentine was just being cautious. But sometimes it was possible to be too cautious. There are other risks on the surface, he noted. We don't know that all the Sith are dead. Some of them may have survived. Farfalla shook his head. Khan had some spell, some power over his followers. They were enthralled to his will. When he led them down into the cave, they all followed him willingly. He had them convinced they could survive the Thought Bomb if they united their power. But he was wrong. What about the Sith minions? Johan pressed, unwilling to let the matter drop. Like the Jedi, the Sith had their share of followers who were not attuned to the Force, soldiers and mercenaries who had allied themselves with the Brotherhood of Darkness. We didn't capture them all, the young Padawan pointed out. Some of them fled the battle, they'll still be down there. That's what this is for, the woman soldier assured him, patting the blaster on her hip. She gave a fierce smile, her gleaming white teeth contrasting sharply with her dark complexion. Irtana knows how to take care of herself, Farfalla agreed. She's seen more combat than you and me put together. Please, Lord Valentine, Johan begged, dropping to one knee. A vain and foolish gesture, but he was desperate. He knew Farfalla was right, but he didn't care. He didn't care about logic or reason or even the dangers of the Thought Bomb. He just couldn't sit by doing nothing. Please. He was my master. Farfalla reached out with his hand and placed it tenderly on Johan's forehead. Hoth warned me that his decision to send you away would not rest easily on your shoulders. He said softly, But your master was a wise man. He knew what was best for you, as do I. You must trust my judgment in this, even if you do not fully understand it. Removing his hand from the young man's brow, the new leader of the Army of Light took Johan by the arm and helped him to his feet. Your master made a great sacrifice to save us all, he said. If we give in to our emotions now, if we allow ourselves to come to needless harm, then we dishonor what he has done. Do you understand? Johan nodded, a Padawan acquiescing to the greater wisdom of a Jedi Master. Good, Farfalla said, turning away to focus his attention on one of the other rescue teams. If you want to help, give Ertana a hand loading up their supplies. Johan nodded again, though Farfalla didn't notice. 
He was already gone, whisked away by the responsibilities of his position. Working in silence, Johan helped load the last few supplies into the shuttle. Field kits filled with rations and water capsules, med packs in case they came across any wounded, electro-binoculars and a sensor pack for scouting and recon, glow rods for when night fell, and of course, spare power packs for the blasters Ertana and the others carried in case they encountered any surviving minions from Khan's army. Thank you, Ertana said once they were done. Trying to appear casual, Joe Hunt took a quick look around. Farfalla was nowhere to be seen. Did you want to fly us down or should I? He asked her. The words were easy, but as he said them, he reached out with the force to touch her mind. He did it gently, being careful not to cause her any harm as he planted the seed of a suggestion. Her eyes glazed over momentarily and a look of blank confusion crossed her face. Um, I'll fly us down, I guess. You can take the co-pilot's chair. You're coming with us? Bordon, the middle-aged father, asked. From his tone, it was obvious he had doubts. Of course, Johan replied amicably. You all heard him say I should help you load up the supplies, right? Why else would he say that if I wasn't going with you? As he had done with Ertana, he gave another slight push, adding the mind-altering power of the Force to the half-truth. Normally... He would have abhorred the idea of manipulating friends or allies in this fashion, but in this case, he knew the ragtag rescue team would fare better if he accompanied them. Yeah, right, Bordon agreed after a moment. Good to have you along. Makes sense to have a Jedi with us, Yurtana added. Just in case. Persuading someone through the Force was always easier when it was something they wanted to be convinced of, Johan noted. Still, he felt a slight twinge of guilt as he climbed into the small ship-to-surface shuttle. That's only because you're disobeying Farfalla, he reassured himself. You're doing the right thing. Everyone strap in, Hirtana ordered, speaking over the pressurized hiss as the airlock sealed. The shuttle's engines flared to life, lifting them off the docking platform. Back home to Rusan, or at least what's left of it. Bordon muttered glumly as they drifted through the cargo hold doors and out into the upper reaches of the planet's atmosphere. Chapter 3 Darth Bane felt them long before he saw them. Those ignorant in the ways of the Force saw it as only a weapon or tool. It could strike out against a foe in battle. It could levitate nearby objects and draw them into a waiting palm or fling them across a room. But these were mere wizard's tricks to one who understood its true power and potential. The Force was a part of all living things, and all living things were a part of the Force. It flowed through every being, every animal and creature, every tree and plant. The fundamental energies of life and death coursed through it, causing ripples in the very fabric of existence. Even distracted by the agonizing flashes of the blade slicing apart the inside of his skull, Bane was sensitive to these ripples. They gave him an awareness that transcended space and even time, granting him brief glimpses into the always shifting possibilities of the future. 
That was how, still two kilometers and several minutes away from where Khan and his army had made their camp, he knew others were already there. There were eight in total, all human, six men and two women, mercenaries who'd signed on with the Brotherhood for credits and a chance to strike at the hated Republic. They'd survived the final battle with Hoth's troops. They had most likely fled the confrontation the instant Khan had descended into the bowels of the planet's surface to lay his trap for the Jedi, displaying the loyalty of all followers bought and paid for. And now, like blood beetles picking the rotting meat off a Bantha's corpse, they had come to scavenge whatever remnants of value they could find from the deserted Sith camp. There's someone up ahead, Xana whispered a minute later. Less attuned to the subtle nuances of the Force than her master, it had taken her longer to sense the danger. But given her lack of training, the fact that she had noticed anything at all was testament to her abilities. Wait here, Bane ordered, holding out a hand to free Xana in her place. Wisely, she obeyed. He didn't look back as he broke into a full run. The ground rushed by beneath his feet, a blur of motion as he called on the force to drive him forward. The pain in his head vanished, swept away by the anticipation of battle and the physical exhilaration of his charge. Within sixty seconds the Sith camp came into view, the outlines of the doomed mercenaries clearly visible as they argued over which objects were worthy of plunder. Six of the looters were gathered in the small clearing at the center of the camp, dividing up the spoils. The other two were on point, sentries stationed near the outskirts of the tents to watch for signs of trouble. Their posts were mere formality, however. The sentries should have been stationed on opposite sides of the camp to guard against assault from either direction. Instead, the two men were standing less than twenty meters apart, more interested in having someone to pass the time with than in securing the perimeter. Bane surveyed the scene with contempt as he bore down on them, the force allowing him to take in every detail in one quick glance. The men on point were oblivious to his approach their attention drawn by the angry shouts of disagreement coming from the other six bickering over their ill-gotten gains. Altering his course slightly so his arrival would be hidden by a large supply tent until the last possible instant, Bane gave a final burst of acceleration and descended upon the camp in a storm of ruin. He drew and ignited his lightsaber in one smooth motion. The keening hum of the crimson blade preceded him, betraying his position a few precious seconds before his arrival. The advance warning gave just enough time for the nearest sentry to draw his blaster, but not nearly enough time to save him from the coming slaughter. Bane materialized from behind the supply tent and fell on his first victim like a dark wind, slicing him diagonally from shoulder to hip. The man wore battle armor made up of composite plates stitched together on an interwoven padded underlay to allow for flexibility. The vest covering his chest was capable of absorbing several high-powered blaster shots from inside 30 meters, but Bane's blade sliced through the protective layers and carved a fatal 5-centimeter gash through the flesh and bone beneath. As the first victim toppled over, Bane leapt high in the air toward his next foe, instantly closing the 10 meters between them and simultaneously evading the hastily fired shot from the second sentry's blaster pistol. As he came down, virtually on top of his enemy, he delivered an overhead two-handed descending chop, a classic move from Dejem So, the fifth and most powerfully aggressive form of lightsaber combat. 
the heavy strike perfectly bisected the unfortunate man's helmet and drove deep into the skull beneath. The gruesome ends of the first two mercenaries gave the others time to recognize what was happening. They drew their weapons and fired a full volley of blaster bolts at Bane as he turned to face them from across the camp. Smoothly transitioning from the attacking style of Form 5 to the more defensive style of Form 3, Bane deflected the incoming bolts with two-handed parries of his lightsaber, flicking them aside with almost casual disdain. Twirling his weapon in his right hand, Bane paused to relish the hopelessness and terror emanating from the half a dozen surviving mercenaries as they recognized the inevitable fact of their own deaths. Clustered together in the clearing between the tents, they did the only thing that gave any of them a chance of survival. They broke and ran. They scattered in all directions. One of the women ran off to the left. Two men ran off to the right. The other three turned and fled in a direct line away from the deadly interloper. Still twirling his lightsaber, Bane thrust his empty hand out before him, palm extended, as he unleashed the force in a wave of concussive power at the woman fleeing to his left. The wave cut a swath of devastation through the camp. Tents were uprooted from the ground, their material torn and shredded. Wooden supply crates exploded into kindling, the shattered contents spraying out in a shower of splintered shrapnel. The force wave slammed into the woman's back, pulverizing her spine and snapping her neck as it drove her face down into the dirt and pinned her against the ground. Her corpse twitched once, then went forever still. Clenching the fingers of his left hand tight against his open palm, Bane wheeled toward the two men on his right and thrust his fist up into the air. A dozen forks of blue lightning arced out from above his head to envelop the screaming soldiers, cooking them alive. Shrieking in agony, they danced and twitched like marionettes on electric strings for several seconds before their smoking husks collapsed on the ground. In the few seconds it had taken to dispatch the others, the surviving three mercenaries had reached the far side of the Sith camp. A few meters beyond the edge of the tents, a line of trees marked the start of the thick Rusan forests. The concealing branches taunted them with offers of safety, giving even greater haste to their terror-filled flight. Bane watched them retreat with idle disinterest, savoring their fear. A handful of steps from freedom, one of the men made the fatal mistake of glancing back over his shoulder to see whether their adversary was following. On a whim, Bane sent his lightsaber hurtling toward him with a casual toss. The spinning blade sliced through the air in a tight loop, crossing the expanse of the camp in a fraction of a second before swooping back to be caught in the waiting hand of its master. Two of the mercenaries vanished into the forest, crashing through the underbrush. The third, the one who'd paused to look back, stood still a stone. A second later, his head toppled forward from his shoulders to bounce and roll across the ground, severed from the cauterized stump of his neck by the crimson blade of Bane's thrown lightsaber. As if the fallen head were a signal, the rigid limbs of the decapitated corpse went suddenly limp and it fell over sideways. Bane extinguished his lightsaber, the blade vanishing with a sharp hiss. For a brief instant he reveled in his victory, drinking in the last lingering remnants of his victim's emotions, drawing power from their fear and suffering. And then the moment was gone, fleeing like those who'd escaped his wrath. 
He could have pursued them, but as much as he yearned to taste their panic, he understood the purpose of letting them live. You let them get away. He spun around in surprise to see Xana standing just inside the perimeter of the camp. Engrossed in the slaughter, he hadn't sensed her approach. Either that, or his young apprentice had taken pains to shield her presence from him. Don't underestimate her, Bane reminded himself. She has the power to one day surpass you. You let them get away, Xana repeated. She didn't sound angry or disappointed or even pleased. She just seemed puzzled. I told you to wait for me, Bane admonished her. Why did you disobey? She didn't answer right away, weighing her words carefully until she could find an answer that would appease her master. I wanted to see the true power of the dark side, she admitted finally. Can you teach me to... She trailed off, unable to find the words to describe what she had just witnessed. Instead, she simply waved her hand, indicating the totality of the carnage he'd unleashed. You will learn, Bane assured her, attaching the hooked handle of his lightsaber back onto his belt. She didn't smile, but there was an eager expression in her gaze, a hunger her master knew well. He'd seen the same raw ambition in the eyes of Githany, his former lover and one of Khan's doomed followers. He knew that if Xana did not learn to temper and control her ambition, it would lead her down a path of destruction, just as it had with Githany. Prowess in combat is the simplest display of the dark side's power, her master cautioned her. Brutal and quick, it serves a purpose, yet it is often less effective than subtlety and cunning. Ultimately, letting those mercenaries live may prove more useful than killing them. But they were weak, his apprentice protested, throwing his own teachings back at him. They deserve to die. Few beings in the galaxy ever get what they truly deserve, he noted, choosing his words with care. The dark side was not easily understood. Even he was still learning to work his way through its complexities and contradictions. He had to be careful not to overwhelm his young apprentice, yet it was important that she grasp the essence of what he'd done here. Our mission is not to bring death to all those unfit to live. We answer to a greater calling. All I have done on Rusan and all that we will do from this day forward must serve our true purpose. The preservation of our order and the survival of the Sith. After a moment's consideration, Xana shook her head. I'm sorry, Master. She admitted, I still don't get why you didn't just kill them. As servants of the dark side, we revel in the vanquishing of our enemies. We draw power from their suffering. But we must balance this against greater gains. We must recognize that killing for sadistic pleasure, killing without reason, need, or purpose, is the act of a fool. A frown of confusion crossed the young girl's face. What purpose is there in letting scum like that live? The Jedi believe the Order of the Sith died here on Rusan. He explained patiently. There are followers of the dark side on many other worlds. The marauders of Honagar and Gamor, the shadow assassins of Ryloth and Umbara. But those with the greatest power, 
All those individuals with the potential to become true Sith Masters had gathered together in Khan's Brotherhood. As one, they followed him into this war. And as one, they followed him into death. But there will be those who doubt the totality of the Sith extinction. There will always be whispers that the Sith survive, hints and rumors that somewhere in the galaxy a Dark Lord lives. And if the Jedi ever find proof of our existence, they will be relentless in hunting us down. He paused to let the implications of his last statement sink in before continuing. We cannot live in isolation, cut off from the rest of the galaxy while cowering in fear. We must work to grow our power. We will need to interact with individuals of many species across many worlds. It is inevitable that some among them will recognize us for what we are, no matter our disguise. Eventually, word of our existence will reach the ears of the Jedi. Xana was studying him closely, absorbing every word, seeking enlightenment in the murky logic of the dark side. Since we cannot hide the fact of our survival, Bane continued, we must obscure it with half-truths. We must encourage the rumors, spreading them so thick they blind our enemies until they cannot separate myth from reality. A glimmer of understanding illuminated Xana's face. A rumor is only as reliable as its source, she exclaimed. Bane nodded in satisfaction. The survivors will spread the tale, but who will believe the likes of them? Everyone will know they are self-serving mercenaries who fled the final battle to save themselves, then came to loot the camp of their former allies. They will be spit upon as traitors and thieves. Nobody who hears their story will believe it, and the truth will be dismissed as a worthless rumor. And if there are any other witnesses to our presence on Rusan, Bane added, spinning out the final thread of the convoluted tapestry of deception, their accounts are now less likely to be believed. They will be tainted by their similarity to the so-called lies spewing from the mouths of cowardly looters. No use or purpose in their deaths, Xana muttered, half to herself. She didn't say anything else, seemingly lost in thought as she mulled over all that she had been told. Bane turned his attention away from his apprentice and focused on the items the looters had gathered in the center of the camp. He was the last of the Sith. If there was anything here of value, then by rights, it should belong to him. Most of what they had collected held no interest for Bane. Some of Khan's Brotherhood had hoarded items of immense value, believing that the greed and envy they inspired in others could feed the power of the dark side. The mercenaries had grabbed these trinkets, ornate rings and necklaces fashioned from precious metals and set with glittering stones, ceremonial daggers and knives, their hilts inlaid with gleaming gems, intricately carved masks and small statues of remarkable skill shaped from rare and delicate materials and thrown them haphazardly in a pile. Surveying the invaluable treasures that were worthless to his purpose, Bane felt another jolt of pain at the back of his head. In the same instant he saw a figure flicker at the corner of his right eye, then vanish from his field of vision. He snapped his head around in the direction of the movement, but saw nothing. It hadn't been Xana, this figure was much taller, 
he reached out with the force, but felt only himself and his apprentice within the perimeter of the camp. What's the matter? She asked, noting his sudden unease. Is someone coming? It's nothing, Bane replied. Was it nothing? He wondered. Or is this another side effect of the thought bomb? Xana made her way over to where he was standing, her eye drawn by the sun reflecting off the jewelry dumped on the ground. What's this? She asked, stooping to dig out something almost completely buried at the bottom of the pile. She emerged with a thin, leather-bound manuscript. She turned it over curiously, examining it from all angles until Bane extended his hand. In response, she came dutifully forward and presented him with her find. He recognized the style of the manuscript. There had been several similar volumes in the library at the Brotherhood's Academy on Korriban, though Bane had never seen this particular work before. The volume was thin, a few dozen pages at most, and the cover inscribed with arcane words traced in blood-red ink. Bane recognized the language. He had become familiar with the tongue of the ancient Sith during his studies at the Academy, turning to the wisdom of masters long dead rather than trusting the fools who sought to instruct him in the tarnished new Sith philosophy of the Brotherhood. He opened the volume and found that the same blood-red ink had been used to fill the pages with delicate script and elaborate illustrations. As with the words on the cover, the language inside was that of the ancient Sith. However, the margins of each page were filled with handwritten notes in galactic basic. He recognized the handwriting as that of Cordis, the former head of the Academy on Korriban, and one of the many so-called Sith Lords serving under Khan. Unlike the rest of the Brotherhood of Darkness, however, Cordis hadn't perished in the Thought Bomb's blast. He actually died several hours earlier, when Bane had used the Force to crush the life out of his former teacher. Why did Cordis bring this manuscript with him to Korriban? Bane wondered. Cordis had always been more concerned with hoarding wealth than studying the ancient texts. He wore only the finest silks and most expensive jewelry. Each of the long, cruel fingers on both hands had been adorned with rings of incredible value. Even his tent on Korriban had been decorated with rare woven tapestries and ornate rugs. If he had carried this manuscript with him all the way from the academy, Bane realized it must contain knowledge of tremendous value. What's it say? Xana asked, but Bane paid her no attention. He flipped quickly through the manuscript, skimming both the original text and Cordis's notes. It seemed to be a compilation of the history and teachings of Freedon Nad, a great Sith Master who'd lived over 3,000 standard years ago. Bane had read previous accounts of Nad, but this one had something the other versions lacked. The location of his final resting place. For many centuries, the tomb of Freedon Nad had been lost, hidden by the Jedi so that the followers of the Dark Side could not seek to gain guidance or power from the Sith artifacts sealed inside. But on the last page of the manuscript, Cordis had made one final note, underlined for emphasis. Seek the tomb on Duxon. How Cordis had come by this information signified little to Bane. All that mattered was that he now knew the location too. The war on Rusan had prevented Cordis from attempting to find Nad's tomb on Duxon. Now that the war was over, there was nothing to keep Bane from making the journey and claiming Nad's legacy as his own. But first, 
he had to get off Rusan. The all-too-familiar jolt of pain shot through his skull, and once again he caught the flicker of a figure from the corner of his eye. This time the image seemed to sustain itself for nearly a full second. Tall, broad-shouldered, and clad in the robes of the Sith, it was a figure Bane recognized. Lord Khan. And then, as before, it vanished. Is this real? Was it possible that the leader of the Brotherhood of Darkness had, in some form, survived the Thought Bomb? Was it possible his spirit now haunted the world of his death? He closed the volume and looked down at Zana. She gave no indication that she had seen or sensed anything. Just a trick of the mind, Bane thought. It was the only explanation that made sense. Zana would have felt the manifestation of a dark side spirit so close by, yet she had been oblivious. The realization brought him an odd mix of relief and concern. When he had seen Khan looming beside him, Bane had thought for an instant, just an instant, that he'd failed in his quest to destroy the Brotherhood. But the affirmation of his mission's success was tempered by the awareness that the Thought Bomb had done even more damage than he'd first suspected. Hopefully, the delusions and agonizing headaches were only temporary. Xana was still staring up at him, barely able to contain the flood of questions she had about what he'd discovered inside the pages of the treasure she'd found. Her expression of expectant curiosity turned to disappointment when he slid the manuscript into the folds of his clothes without offering any explanation. In time, Bane would share all his knowledge, present and future, with her. But until he had a chance to explore Nad's tomb himself, he was reluctant to tell anyone, even his apprentice, of its existence. Are you ready to leave this world? He asked. I'm sick of this place, she answered, a hint of bitterness in her voice. Things have gone bad ever since I got here. Your cousins? Bane asked, remembering a remark she'd made earlier about the two boys with whom she'd first arrived. Do you miss them? What's the point? She replied with a shrug. Tomcat and Bug are dead. Why waste time thinking about them? Her words were indifferent, but Bane recognized her callousness as a defense mechanism. Beneath the surface, he could feel her passions burning. She was angry and resentful over their deaths. She blamed the Jedi for what happened, and she would never forgive them. Her rage would always be a part of her, simmering below the surface. It would serve her well in the years to come. Come with me, Bane said, reaching a decision. He led her over to an abandoned swoop bike near one of the tents. He climbed aboard and she clambered up onto the seat behind him. Her slim arms wrapped tightly around his waist as the swoop's engine roared to life and it lifted up into the air. Why are we taking the swoop? She asked, shouting into his ear to be heard above the thrusters. We will travel faster this way. Time grows short, Bane called back over his shoulder. Soon the Jedi will return to claim their dead and seek out the survivors of Khan's army. But there is still one last lesson you must learn before we go. He didn't say any more. Some things could not be explained, but had to be witnessed to be understood. Xana needed to see the remains of the Thought Bomb. She needed to see the true scope of Khan's madness. She needed to grasp the finality of what Bane had accomplished here. And he needed to assure himself 
that the figure he'd seen was nothing more than an after-effect of his exposure to the thought bomb. He wanted to see with his own eyes undeniable proof that Khan was truly destroyed. Chapter 4 Daravit lay huddled on the cold cavern floor, bathed in the eerie light emanating from the egg-shaped silver orb hovering in the center of the underground chamber. He hadn't moved for nearly two hours, paralyzed with the wonder and horror of it all. It was as if time had no meaning here at the epicenter of the thought bomb, as if Daravit himself were now suspended between life and death, trapped like the tormented spirits of Khan's followers and the Jedi who dared to face them. Eventually, however, his shock began to fade. Slowly, sanity crept back in, dragging the reality of the physical world with it. The air in the cave was damp and chilled. His body was shivering almost uncontrollably. His nose was running, and he reached up to wipe it away with a shaking hand, his fingers clumsy with the numbing cold. Come on, Tomcat, he said to himself. Time to get moving. Up and at him. With a great effort, he managed to get to his feet, then fell back down with a cry as his calves and thighs cramped beneath him. The pain helped break the last lingering vestiges of the spell he was under, snapping him back to the present and focusing his mind on the here and now. Frantically, he massaged each of his legs, trying to restore the blood flow. He was anxious to leave this place now, desperate to get away from the evil presence of the silently pulsing bomb. Glancing up at it made his skin crawl. Yet as repulsive as it was, he found it strangely compelling. Don't look at it he berated himself in a sharp whisper, redoubling his efforts to ease the pain and tightness in his lower limbs. After another minute, he dared to stand up again. Pins and needles shot through the soles of his feet, and his knees buckled briefly, but he stayed standing. He looked from side to side, scanning the cavern by the light of the orb. There were at least half a dozen entrances leading out from the chamber, and Daravit swore when he realized he had no idea which would lead him back up to the surface. You can't stay here, he muttered. Picking a tunnel at random, he made his way with slow, uneasy steps out of the cavern. The darkness quickly enveloped him once he entered the passage, until he drew out the lightsaber the Sith had given him. Using the faint glow of its ruby blade, he was able to pick his way along the uneven terrain. It didn't take him long to realize he'd made the wrong choice. He remembered the sharp incline he had tumbled down on his arrival, but the floor here was relatively flat. It would have been a simple matter to head back and take one of the other exits, but the thought of returning to the main chamber and the orb of trapped spirits prevented him from turning around. This tunnel's gotta come out somewhere, he told himself. Just follow it to the surface. The plan sounded simple, but it became more complicated when he reached a fork in the passage. He hesitated for several moments, studying the branch heading off to his left and then the one heading off to his right. Neither offered any clue as to which, if either, would lead him to freedom. With a resigned sigh and a shake of the head, he chose the one on the left. Forty minutes and three more branches later, he was regretting his decision. He couldn't go back to the cavern now even if he'd wanted to. 
he'd become hopelessly turned around in the subterranean labyrinth. His stomach grumbled, and the realization that he might never find his way out began to creep into the corners of his mind. He pushed on, his pace increasing with his rising panic. He was running now, his eyes darting from side to side, hoping that the dim illumination of the lightsaber's blade would reveal something, anything that might show him the way. He darted down another side tunnel, stumbling along in his haste until he tripped and fell. As he threw his hands forward to break his fall, the lightsaber flew from his grasp. It scored a gash along the wall, then bounced away from him across the uneven floor, extinguishing itself and casting all into total darkness. Daravid had hit the ground hard. He lay face down in the utter blackness of the tunnel, surrendering to the hopeless despair that crashed in on him. There was no point in going on. He would never find his way out. Better to just die here, forgotten and alone. He rolled over onto his back, blind eyes staring up at the ceiling. And then he heard a sound. It was faint but unmistakable. A voice coming from a great distance, cutting through the oppressive silence. Now you're hearing things, Tomcat, he thought. But a second later, he heard it again, echoing through the tunnel. Someone else was down here. He didn't know if it was a Jedi come to witness the fate of his fallen comrades, a minion of the Sith who had fled the final battle, or someone allied with a completely different group. He had no idea if whoever it was would welcome him, take him prisoner, or kill him on sight. But he didn't care. Even the fear of going back to the chamber and the unnatural, unholy silver orb didn't hold him back this time. Anything was better than dying of exposure or starvation in these dark tunnels beneath the planet's surface. Crawling forward through the gloom, he felt around with his hands until his fingers closed around the hilt of the lightsaber. They thrust it triumphantly up in the air as it ignited, allowing him to see once more. He had no way of knowing how far away the owner of the voice was. The acoustics of the tunnel were strange and unfamiliar. Sounds and echoes were unnaturally distorted as they bounced across the irregular stone walls of the underground maze. But he was certain the voice had come from somewhere up ahead, in the direction he'd been going. With the glowing blade to guide him, he moved with an eager confidence. Every minute or so, he would catch another snatch of conversation coming to him from somewhere up ahead. He could tell there were two speakers now, each with a distinct voice, one a deep bass, the other a much higher pitch. Each time he heard the voices, they were slightly louder, and he knew he was headed in the right direction. He noticed that the darkness of the tunnel was fading. He no longer needed his lightsaber to see his surroundings. But it wasn't the yellow light of the sun streaming in as he neared the surface. It was a cold silver glow. With a start, he realized he had somehow circled back and was once more approaching the chamber of the Thought Bomb. Whoever the voices belonged to, friend or foe, he'd find them there. The chamber was close, so close he could make out the words the next time the voices spoke. The Sith are only two now. One master and one apprentice, the deeper one said. There will be no others. What happens if I fail? The other replied. Sounds like a woman, Daravid thought, too focused on following the voices to pay much attention to the actual words. No, not a woman. He corrected himself a second later. A girl. Will you destroy me too? 
the girl asked. With a shock, Daravit realized that he knew the voice. He didn't know how it was possible, but there was no doubt in his mind who this was. Rain! He shouted, breaking into a run to meet the cousin he'd thought was dead. Rain! You're alive! The trip to the cave was quick and uneventful. Bane had noticed a few shell-shocked survivors of the final battle of Rusan staring at him and Zan as they roared past on their swoop, but he paid them little heed. He doubted any of them would recognize him for what he truly was. And even if they did, their tales of a surviving Sith Lord racing past them with a young girl in tow would seem as ludicrous and unreliable as the accounts of the mercenaries he had let escape back at Khan's camp. He brought the swoop to a stop outside the dark and forbidding tunnel that would lead them down to the chamber of the Thought Bomb. Small pebbles crunched loudly beneath the hard soles of his heavy black boots as he dismounted. Xana was too small to simply step off the vehicle, but she leapt down from her seat without any sign of fear or hesitation, landing nimbly on the ground beside him. Neither of them spoke as they made the descent, their way lit by one of the glow rods Bane had found in the supplies back at the Sith camp. The air grew colder and Xana shivered beside him, but she didn't complain. They moved quickly down the rough-hewn passage. Even so, it took nearly twenty minutes for them to reach their destination, due to the length of the tunnel. And for the first time, Darth Bane actually saw what his manipulations of Khan and his followers had wrought. The pale glowing orb floating in the center of the chamber was nearly four meters tall. It pulsed with raw power. It made the flesh on Bane's neck crawl and the hair on his arms stand on end. Dark veins of shadow swirled on the shimmering metallic surface in slow hypnotic rhythms. There was something grotesquely compelling about it, something fascinating yet repulsive at the same time. Beside him, Xana gasped, drawing a sharp breath in wonder, then releasing it in a slow hiss of fear. He glanced down at her, but she didn't return his gaze. Her wide eyes were transfixed by the remnants of the Thought Bomb. Turning his attention back to the orb, Bane stepped forward into the chamber. Xana took a single step to follow him, then held back. Approaching the globe, he reached out with his bare hand and pressed it firmly against the surface. It seared his palm with cold fire, but he was oblivious to the pain, enthralled by the object's mesmerizing call. Beneath his touch, the dark swirling shadows within coalesced into a single mass. The thoughts of those trapped inside rushed up to meet him. Faint whispers in the dark recesses of his mind. The words, unintelligible, but full of hate and despair. Instinctively, Bane's consciousness recoiled. He resisted, fighting the urge to pull his hand back. Instead, he thrust his awareness forward penetrating the surface of the orb to plunge into the unfathomable depths of its black heart. The hateful whispers erupted into shrieks of torment. But these were not the screams of sentient beings. They were bestial howls of primal, mindless fury. The identities of those the Thought Bomb had consumed, Lord Khan, General Hoth, all their Sith and Jedi followers, had been destroyed, ripped apart by the Thought Bomb's explosion. Only torn bits remained broken pieces of what once had been spirits, no longer capable of conscious thought. 
wailing in the shared suffering of their eternal madness. They swarmed over Bane's consciousness, cleaving to his still whole identity like parasites attaching themselves to a fresh host. The keening spirits enveloped him, clutching and clawing at his sanity as they tried to drag him down with them into their dark abyss. Bane tore free with contemptuous ease, shredding the already frail and tattered spirits as he cast them aside and let his mind drift back to the surface. An instant later, he was free, leaving behind the prison from which the others would never escape. He let his hand drop from the oblong sphere as he took a step back, satisfied at what he'd learned. There were no ghosts haunting him. Khan was no more. Not in any real sense. The figure he'd seen at the Sith camp had been nothing but a delusion, conjured up by his own wounded psyche. Are they trapped in there? Zana asked. She was staring at Bane with an expression of both awe and terror. Trapped? Dead? It makes no difference. He answered with a shrug. Khan and the Brotherhood are gone. They got what they deserved. Were they weak? Bane didn't answer right away. Khan had been many things, ambitious, charismatic, stubborn, and in the end a fool, but he had never been weak. Khan was a traitor, he said at last. He led the Brotherhood away from the teachings of the ancient Sith. He turned his back on the very essence of the dark side. Xana didn't reply, but she looked up at him expectantly. The role of mentor was a new one for Bane. He was a man of action, not words. He wasn't used to taking the time to share his wisdom with another desperate to learn it. But he was smart enough to understand that the lessons would have far more meaning if his apprentice could figure out some of the answers for herself. Why did you choose to become my apprentice? He asked, challenging her. Why did you choose the way of the dark side? Power, she replied quickly. Power is only a means to an end, Bane admonished her. It is not an end in itself. What do you need power for? The girl furrowed her brow. Her master already recognized this expression as a sign she was struggling to come up with an answer. Through power, I gain victory, she said when she finally spoke, reciting the final lines of the Sith Code she'd learned only a few hours earlier. From her tone, it was clear she was trying to work through her limited understanding of the dark side to arrive at the answer Bane wanted. Through victory, my chains are broken, she continued slowly searching for an answer just beyond her reach. A second later, she exclaimed, Freedom! The dark side sets us free! Bane nodded his approval. The Jedi shackle themselves in chains of obedience. Obedience to the Jedi Council, obedience to their masters, obedience to the Republic. Those who follow the light side even believe they must submit themselves to the Force. They are merely instruments of its will, slaves to a greater good. Those who follow the dark side see the truth of their enslavement. We recognize the chains that bind us and hold us back. We believe in the power of the individual to break these chains. That is the path to greatness. Only if we are free can we reach our full potential. The belief 
that an individual must not bow down before anyone or anything is the dark side's greatest strength, Bane continued. But it is also our ultimate weakness. The struggle to rise above those around you is often violent, and in the past, the Sith were constantly at one another's throats. Isn't that a good thing? Xana interjected. The strong will survive and the weak will die. Weak does not mean stupid, Bane countered. There were those with less power, but more cunning. Several apprentices would band together to take down a powerful master, hoping to elevate their own position among the Sith. Then they would turn on one another, making and breaking alliances until only one remained. A new master, but one weaker than the original. This survivor would then be taken down in turn by another band of lesser Sith, further weakening our order. Khan recognized this, but his solution was far worse than the problem. Khan declared all the followers of the Dark Side, all the members of the Sith Order, as equals in the Brotherhood of Darkness. In doing so, he betrayed us all. Betrayed you? Equality is a lie. Bane told her, a myth to appease the masses. Simply look around and you will see the lie for what it is. There are those with power, those with the strength and will to lead, and there are those meant to follow, those incapable of anything but servitude and a meager, worthless existence. Equality is a perversion of the natural order, he continued his voice rising as he shared the fundamental truth that lay at the core of his beliefs. It binds the strong to the weak. They become anchors that drag the exceptional down to mediocrity. Individuals destined and deserving of greatness have it denied them. They suffer for the sake of keeping them even with their inferiors. Equality is a chain like obedience like fear or uncertainty or self-doubt. The dark side will break these chains. But Khan could not see this. He did not grasp the true power of the dark side. The Brotherhood of Darkness was nothing but a twisted reflection of the Jedi Order, a dark parody of the very thing we stood against. Under Khan, the Sith had become an abomination. And that's why you killed him, Xana said, thinking the lesson had come to an end. That is why I manipulated Khan into killing himself, Bane corrected. Remember, power alone is not enough. Patience, cunning, secrecy. These are the tools we will use to bring down the Jedi. The Sith are only two now. One master and one apprentice. There will be no others. Xana nodded, though something still seemed to be troubling her. What happens if I fail? She asked, glancing toward the thought bomb. Will you destroy me too? Bane's answer was cut off by a shout coming from one of the nearby passages. Rain! Rain! You're alive! A boy sprinted out of the shadows, no more than a year or two older than Xana. He had dark hair and wore the black armor of the Sith. A lightsaber hilt was clutched tightly in his right hand. 
Despite these warrior's trappings, it was immediately obvious to Bane that this child posed no threat. The Force was barely alive in him. The power that burned so brightly inside Xana was nothing but a dying ember of gray ash in this one. Tomcat! Xana shouted, her face lighting up with joy. She took a step forward, extending her arms as if she wanted to hug him. Then, as if suddenly remembering the presence of her Sith Master, she pulled up short and clutched her hands to her chest. Oblivious, the boy kept coming. He didn't register her sudden change in mood. He hadn't even noticed the two-meter-tall figure looming in the shadows behind her. There was something pathetic about him, a desperate loneliness in his voice and his eyes that turned Bane's stomach. I'm so glad, Rain! The boy gasped as he skidded to a stop in front of Xana, reaching forward to hug her. So glad you're... She stepped back and shook her head, causing his words to catch in his throat. The happiness in his face vanished, replaced by a look of hurt bewilderment. I... I am not Rain, Bane's apprentice said, rejecting her childhood nickname and all it symbolized. I am Xana. Xana? A look of confusion crept across the boy's face. Your real name? But why? Fumbling for answers, he finally tore his gaze away from the young girl and noticed Bane standing motionless in the background. His bewilderment became comprehension and quickly turned into righteous rage. You! He shouted, pointing an accusing finger at Bane. Then, as if suddenly remembering the weapon in his hand, he ignited his lightsaber. You stay away from her! He screamed. I will fight you! The boy knew he was overmatched. He knew he had no chance to win a battle against the Dark Lord of the Sith. Yet he chose to stay and fight anyway. The actions of a complete and utter fool. Darth Bane regarded his doomed adversary with contemptuous indifference. This boy was nothing to him. An inconsequential speck he would wipe away. If the boy wanted the vain and empty glory of a so-called courageous death, Bane would grant it. He dropped his hand casually to his lightsaber, but before he could ignite his weapon, Xana reacted. Just as she had done when she had broken the necks of the unfortunate Jedi who had accidentally killed her friend, the girl unleashed a wave of unstoppable dark side energy. She acted on pure instinct, drawing on her natural affinity for the Force with no forethought, preparation, or even training. It happened so quickly, Bane never even had a chance to put up his guard. But the attack wasn't directed at him. The right hand of the boy she had called Tomcat, her cousin and childhood friend, disintegrated. With a mere thought, she obliterated everything below his wrist. Flesh, bone, and tendon vanished in a bloody explosion, leaving only a ragged stump. With nothing left to grip it, the hilt of his lightsaber clattered to the floor, the blade extinguished. Howling in pain, the boy fell to his knees, clutching his mutilated limb to his chest. Small spurts of blood pumped out of the wound and splattered onto the cavern floor. The master glared down at his apprentice. Why? he demanded. Because there would be no use or purpose in his death, she answered, echoing his own explanation for letting two of the mercenaries survive. Bane was smart enough to recognize what was happening. 
Xana was trying to save her cousin's life. He knew that the emotions driving her, sentimentality, mercy, compassion, were weaknesses from which she must learn to free herself. But he didn't expect his apprentice to learn the ways of the dark side in a single day. He looked down at the injured boy crumpled on the ground. The blood spurting from his stump had slowed. The blast that had taken his hand had also partially cauterized the wound. The flow was further staunched by dust and grime from the cavern floor as he rolled back and forth at Xana's feet. Tears poured from his eyes and mucus ran from his nose to clog his mouth and throat, turning his cries into thick, blubbery whimpers. She regarded him with a cold and calculating eye, feigning disinterest. The risks from letting this wretched creature live were small, Bane decided. Like the mercenaries, no one would believe his tales of surviving an encounter with a Sith Master. It was obvious that Xana wanted the boy alive. But she hadn't begged or bargained for his life. Instead, she had taken charge of the situation, unleashing the dark side and then defending her actions with Bane's own teachings. She had shown not only her power, but also her intelligence and cunning. It was important to reward such behavior, to encourage her when she displayed the gifts and talents that would allow her to one day take the mantle of Dark Lord from her master's shoulders. More important than ending the life of one miserable, insignificant boy. Leave him, Bane said, turning on his heel. He's nothing to us. Xana quickly fell into step beside him as they made their way from the chamber and began the long, slow climb through the tunnels back to Rusan's surface. Bane noted with satisfaction that even though Tomcat's pitiful sobs echoed after them, his apprentice never once glanced back. Chapter 5 Prepare for re-entry turbulence, Irtana warned them from the pilot seat of their shuttle. With a crew of only five, she had no need to use the shipboard intercom. She simply spoke loud enough for everyone aboard to hear. Although the Envoy-class shuttle carried only a handful of passengers, she was capable of comfortably transporting four times that many. The ship had been absorbed into the Jedi fleet sometime during the last few weeks of the Rusan campaign donated by an anonymous benefactor from Coruscant who had been charmed by Farfalla's urgent plea for resources to support the war effort. Christened the Starwig, she was a product of Talon Shipyards, a basic transport vessel capable of both suborbital flight and interstellar travel, thanks to her Class 12 hyperdrive. The fact that she'd been pressed into service was proof of just how desperate the Army of Light had become. Envoy-class shuttles were known for being practical and affordable, making them a favorite choice of independent merchants and wealthy recreational travelers. Their most distinguishing feature was an easy-to-use navigation and autopilot system, allowing users to plot and engage hyperdrive routes to hundreds of known worlds across the Republic with a simple push of a button. Unfortunately, they lacked heavy shielding or any significant armament, and were neither particularly fast nor maneuverable. Johan would have preferred something in a more military vein. He doubted the auto-nav would be any use should a Sith buzzard suddenly appear on the horizon. 
Logically, he knew this was highly unlikely. Every buzzard in Khan's fleet had been accounted for, either shot down, captured by the Army of Light, or seen fleeing the system at the tail end of the final battle. But scores of danger-filled flights through enemy-controlled airspace in the months before their ultimate victory had trained his mind to be on constant alert when approaching the planet's surface. From the way Irtana was white-knuckling the shuttle steering column, he knew he wasn't alone in his irrational fears. There was the faintest bump as they passed from the cold vacuum of space into the upper layers of Rusan's atmosphere and began their descent. Irtana worked the controls with a confident hand, making subtle adjustments to their course as Johan studied the scanners skimming the ground below them, looking for signs of life. Four other craft were visible on the ship's monitors. Like the Starwig, each was crewed by a four to six person rescue team sent by Farfalla to help clean up the aftermath of the war. We've got movement on the ground, Johan called out as unidentified blips popped up on his screen. Transmitting coordinates. Give me details, Irtana ordered, banking the shuttle around in a wide arc that brought them in line with the people on the ground. Two walkers on foot, Johan informed her. Can't tell if they're friendly from up here. Taking us down, Irtana replied. Locating and helping injured survivors was the team's first priority. Providing reconnaissance reports to fleet command came second. And accepting the willing surrender of enemy troops was a distant third. The shuttle nose dipped, and the acceleration pushed Johan back into his seat as they dived in to get a closer look at the figures. Irtana took them in low and fast, a military maneuver that pushed the civilian vessel to her limits. I've got a visual, Johan reported as a pair of tiny, indistinct shapes on the ground became visible through the shuttle's cockpit viewpoint. Bordon lifted himself up out of his seat and leaned forward over the back of Johan's chair to get a view as the shuttle plunged toward the rapidly growing figures. As it drew closer, the details came into focus, a man and a woman, each wearing light armor and running hard. The roar of the rapidly descending shuttle's engines caused the two on the ground to stop running and turn back to look up at them. An instant later, they threw themselves face first to the dirt as the shuttle swooped in less than 10 meters from the ground and buzzed them. Cursing under her breath as she struggled with the clumsy controls, Irtana veered around sharply and brought them into land less than 50 meters away from their quarry. Through the window, Johan saw the pair slowly climb back to their feet as the pilot cut the engines. The woman said something to the man, who nodded in agreement. Then, they raised their hands and began marching slowly toward the vessel. They were dressed like members of Khan's Brotherhood. But Johan didn't feel the presence of the dark side about them. Minions of the Sith, he said. Mercenaries, probably. Could be a trap, Bordon warned. Griffing mercenaries have no honor. I don't think so, Johan replied. If there was any danger here, he would have felt some kind of disturbance in the Force. I think they just want to surrender. Slag-sucking scum, Bordon spat. Fire the engines up and run them over. No, Johan exclaimed when he saw Irtana reaching for the ignition switch. We need to question them, he reminded her. See what they know. Then what? Bordon demanded darkly. Then we take them to Farfalla and lock them up with the rest of the prisoners. 
Bordon slammed his hand against the cockpit wall. These shutter spawn came to my world, my home, to kill my people for profit. They'd cut our throats without a second thought if they had the upper hand. Irtana agreed. We're not like them, Johan said. We don't kill prisoners. My wife died fighting monk whelps like these, Bordon shouted. Now you want to show them mercy? Hate leads to the dark side, Johan replied, reciting the wisdom of the Jedi. But the words lacked power, coming from the mouth of a 19-year-old Padawan. And even as he said them, he knew how empty they sounded. Bordon threw his hands up in frustration, then let himself fall back angrily into his seat. Is that why you're here? He grumbled in disgust. To keep us in line? To make sure we don't stray from your precious light sideways? Is that why Farfalla sent you along? He didn't send me. I came on my own, Johan thought. He turned in his seat to look back at Bordon, who stared intently at the floor, refusing to meet his gaze. His two sons, however, glared at the young Jedi with venom in their eyes. He understood their anger. The Sith had brought war to Rusan, a war that had taken everything they knew and cared about, their homes, their livelihoods, and of course their mother. What Bordon and his sons didn't see was that these nameless soldiers couldn't be held responsible for all the horrors and tragedies that had brought their world crashing down. Whatever their crimes, these two didn't deserve to be made accountable for the actions of Khan and his brotherhood. It was the Sith Masters, the followers of the Dark Side, who were truly to blame. Yet as he looked into the boys' hate-filled stares, he knew there was no hope of making them understand, not while all that they had suffered was still fresh in their minds. Johan had come to Rusan to hunt down any members of the Brotherhood who might have survived the Thought Bomb. He intended to continue the work of General Hoth, his master and mentor, and eliminate the Lords of the Sith, ending the threat of the Dark Side forever. Now, however, he recognized a greater mission. He had to save Bordon and his sons from themselves. These were honest, decent people, but driven by hate and anger, they would butcher their helpless foes in cold blood if he didn't stop them. Johan knew that once their anger faded, the memory of their bloody vengeance would haunt them. Guilt and self-loathing would eat away at Bordon and his boys until it eventually destroyed them. Johan wasn't about to let that happen. Turning his attention back to Irtana, he saw hate in her eyes as well. However, hers was a cold, calculated emotion, a professional soldier regarding an enemy. He recognized she wouldn't kill prisoners on her own, but she also wouldn't do anything to stop the others. And he knew what he had to do. This isn't why Farfalla sent you, he reminded the pilot in a low voice. You're supposed to be helping the survivors. Irtana eyed him suspiciously but didn't say anything. Johan was reluctant to use the force to bend her will to his own again. Subconsciously, she might be more aware of his interference a second time and more likely to resist. Besides, it was important that she truly believe in what he was telling her. Compelling her obedience was a temporary solution, and one that could ultimately cause her to resent or mistrust him and the rest of the Jedi. Let me out, and I'll take the mercenaries into custody, 
Johan said, offering up a plan. Contact the fleet, and they'll send another ship to pick up the three of us. The words weren't easy for him to say. He'd defied Farfalla, a Jedi master, to come to this world. The last thing he wanted was to leave Rusan now, so soon after arriving. Yet he was willing to make that sacrifice if it would prevent Bordon and his sons from giving in to their rash and reckless emotions. It was his duty as a Jedi to protect their lives, even if it meant abandoning his own personal crusade. You and the others should take the shuttle and head south to the battlefield, he continued. Go help the injured. That's what you're here for. Yurtana hesitated, then gave a curt nod of acknowledgement. Johan was barely more than a boy. The long, thin braid in his hair clearly marked that he had not yet completed his Padawan training. But he was still a member of the Jedi Order. That counted for a lot among the Republic troops. He'd been relying on that to help her see the wisdom of his words. Confident that Ertana would keep Bordon and his sons out of trouble, Johan got up from his chair and made his way to the rear of the Starwake. He did his best to ignore the accusing eyes of the two angry young men as he waited for the shuttle's exit hatch to open. When it finally did, he leapt out and landed nimbly on the ground, then made his way quickly toward the pair standing patiently nearby, their hands still raised high above their heads. Once he was clear of the vessel, the engines roared to life, and the ship lifted into the air and took off, much to the dismay of the two mercenaries. Where are they going? The woman demanded, her voice a high-pitched squeak of panic. No, they can't leave us here! Her arms dropped back to her sides, as did her companions. For a second, Johan worried that they might make a move for their weapons, but then he realized they were too distraught over the Starwake's exit to even think about attacking him. Don't let them go! The man shouted, turning away from Johan to watch as the craft flew off and out of sight, then whirling back to implore the young Jedi once more. Make them turn around! Tell them to come back! There was a desperate urgency in his voice that mirrored the tone of his companion. Don't worry, the young Jedi assured them. Another ship is on the way. We can't stay here, the woman insisted. There's no time! He'll find us! He'll find us! It's okay, Johan explained, holding up a calming hand. I can protect you. I'm a Jedi. The woman raised an eyebrow and gave him a skeptical glance. The slight young man widened his stance, placed his hands on his hips, and thrust out his chest, hoping it would make him appear noble and impressive. He tried to project the image of confident self-assurance he'd often admired in Hoth and the other masters. The man grabbed Johan by the arm, tugging it like a child clinging to his mother's apron. We have to get off this planet, he said, the words coming out in a terrified whisper. We have to go now! Johan shook free of the man's grasp with only minor difficulty. There was something unsettling about this whole encounter. From the way these two were dressed, it was clear they were experienced soldiers for hire. He suspected they were deserters from the recent battle, minions of the Sith who'd fled the instant the Army of Light had broken their ranks. But their flight would have been an act of opportunistic preservation rather than fear or cowardice. Still, these combat veterans, accustomed to facing death and bloodshed, were acting like traumatized villagers after a slaver raid. Even if you are a Jedi, 
You can't save us, the woman muttered with a slow shake of her head. You can't protect us from him. Who? Johan wanted to know. Who are you talking about? The man glanced around quickly, as if he was afraid someone might be listening. A dark lord of the Sith, he hissed. One of the Brotherhood? Johan asked, barely able to contain his eagerness. Are you saying a Sith master survived the thought bomb? The man nodded. He killed Lurgan and Hanch, fried them with lightning from his fingers. I knew it, Johan thought triumphantly. I knew it! He had a lightsaber too, the woman added. Sliced Pad and Darren wide open. She hesitated for a moment, shuddering at the memory. Rael got his head cut clean off. Johan was about to ask for more details, but the sound of a rapidly approaching ship momentarily distracted him. He glanced up to see a bivouac troop transport swooping in for a landing. Seconds after it touched down, three Republic soldiers jumped out, weapons at the ready. He recognized the senior officer in the trio. Major Orton Leeds, one of the highest-ranking non-Jedi in the Army of Light's Second Legion. These the prisoners? The Major asked gruffly, pointing his blaster rifle at the mercenaries. Johan nodded. Leeds gave a tilt of his head and his subordinates moved in quickly to slap restraints on the enemy soldiers. Neither made any attempt to resist. Once their wrists were secured, they were frisked and stripped of their weapons, then marched off toward the vessel. The whole encounter was conducted with the efficiency and competence that were the hallmarks of all troops serving under Major Leeds' command. You picked up Ertana's message? Johan asked, as he watched the Sith minions being led away. We were in the area, the officer replied. Farfalla sent me to come get you. Something in his tone caught the young Jedi's attention. Am I in trouble? The officer shrugged. Hard to say. You Jedi tend to keep a tight rein on your emotions. But I bet the General wasn't too happy when he found out you disobeyed a direct order and snuck down here. Don't worry. Johan replied confidently. He'll change his tune when he hears what those prisoners have to tell him. Bane throttled back the swoopback's engine as they approached the small clearing that served as the Valsen's landing site. Originally presented as a gift to Lord Gordas, the vessel had been commandeered by Bane when he left the Academy on Korriban to seek out the knowledge of the ancient Sith. Cordus had never dared to try to take it back, and his cowardice had simply confirmed Bane's decision to abandon his studies and turn his back on the Brotherhood. He brought the swoop to a stop 20 meters from the ship, Xana released her grip on his waist and jumped off, then stood staring at the vessel. Bane wasn't paying attention to her. The last ten minutes, he'd had trouble focusing on anything but the pain carving up his skull. He'd hoped delving into the depths of the shimmering orb left behind by the thought bomb might somehow relieve the headaches, but if anything, they'd gotten worse since their visit to the cave. At least, he'd been able to confirm that Khan was truly dead. That made it easier for him to dismiss the ghostly form that materialized just then on the far side of the clearing. Pale beneath the late afternoon sun, it was undeniably the image of the man who'd founded the Brotherhood of Darkness. Bane knew it was nothing but a hallucination, yet there was something compelling about the figure as it crossed the clearing to stop a meter or so away from the ship. 
The spirit turned and fixed him with a steady gaze, then reached out a beckoning hand. She's beautiful, Xana breathed. Darth Bane snapped his head around in surprise, but his apprentice was staring raptly at the Valsin herself. When Bane turned his attention back to where Khan had been standing, the specter had vanished once again. I never thought I'd be leaving Rusan in a ship like this, Xana said. You aren't, Bane said as he stepped off the swoop. There was nothing he could do about the hallucinations other than act as if they didn't exist. The young girl turned to look back at him, confused. We're not taking your ship? I am, her master replied. But you must find your own way off this world. It took a moment for his words to register with the girl. When they did, her expression became one of utter shock. I... I can't come with you? The big man shook his head. Spurred on by Xana's discovery of the ancient tome in the Sith camp, he'd come up with a plan. He was heading for Duxon, Onderon's oversized moon, to seek out the lost tomb of Freedon Nad. But he had other ideas for his apprentice. But why not? What did I do? The young girl choked out, clearly on the verge of tears. Why are you leaving me? This is part of your training, Bane explained. To understand the dark side, you must suffer through hardship and struggle. You don't have to abandon me to make me suffer, she countered. Take me with you. The strength of the dark side lies with the power of the individual, he reminded her. The force comes from within. You must learn to draw on it yourself. I will not always be there to teach you. But you said there were always two. Xana insisted. One to embody the power, the other to crave it. She learned quickly, and Bane was pleased to see she had already committed so many of his lessons to memory. But reciting the words meant nothing if she didn't understand the truth behind them. Why do you follow me? He asked, posing a question to lead her down the path of wisdom. Xana thought about her answer for several seconds, carefully considering everything he'd already taught her to unleash my full potential, she said at last, to learn the ways of the dark side. Bane nodded, and when I no longer have anything to teach you, what will happen then? Her brow furrowed in concentration, but this time the answer wouldn't come. I don't know, she finally admitted. There will come a time when your training ends, he told her. There will come a day when you have learned all the lessons, when all my knowledge of the dark side will be yours. On that day, you will challenge me for the title of master, and only one of us will survive the encounter. The girl's eyes opened wide. Then they narrowed as she focused intently on what he was saying. You have the potential to surpass me, he continued. If you achieve your potential, I will cease to be of use to you. You will need to find new sources of knowledge. You will have to seek out a new apprentice so that you may pass on the secrets of the Sith Order to another. When your power eclipses mine, I will become expendable. This is the rule of two. One master, 
and one apprentice. When you are ready to claim the mantle of Dark Lord as your own, you must do so by eliminating me. The confrontation is inevitable, he concluded. It is the only way the Sith can survive. It is the way of the dark side. Xana didn't say anything. From her expression, Bane saw she was still struggling to comprehend why her master would train her, knowing that she would ultimately betray him. But she didn't need to understand, not yet. Right now, she needed only to obey him. Make your way to Onderan, Bane instructed her. I will meet you there in ten standard days. Then he thought, after I find Nad's tomb on Duxin. How am I supposed to get there? She protested. You are the chosen one, the anointed heir to the legacy of our order. You will find a way. And if I don't? Then you will have proven yourself unworthy of being my successor, and I will seek out another apprentice. There was nothing more to say. Bane turned.